In October 1942, Captain Eddie Rickenbacker and seven other servicemen boarded a B-17 bomber and headed out on a very long flight over some uncharted waters in the Pacific Ocean. What they didn't know when they left and as they were flying was that their main piece of navigational equipment was malfunctioning and had actually been pointing them not in the wrong direction but just slightly off of the direction that they intended to go. And after flying many, many hours and looking for the island that they were supposed to refuel on, there was no land in sight anywhere. They began to send out desperate radio calls. They flew back and forth searching for land, but there was none in sight. And as their fuel ran out, the pilot did his best to guide the sputtering plane down towards the ocean swells and do somewhat of a controlled crash landing on the water, but the plane hit at a bad angle because the, there were very large swells at that particular point, at that particular moment, and tore the plane apart. Water immediately began flooding in, and these men managed to get just three small life rafts off the plane and four oranges. That's all they were able to grab in the mad rush. And they turned and saw the plane disappear beneath the sea. They spent the next three weeks drifting helplessly on that vast ocean like tiny specks. No land in sight, no planes, no ships for three weeks. They were malnourished, they were dehydrated, they were hallucinating, they were nearly dead. And after three weeks, a plane finally spotted them and hours later they were rescued and as the weeks unfolded after that, the story unfolded as well, and it was a heart-wrenching story. They described how they had to fight to keep each other's morale up, not just day by day, but literally minute by minute, when despair and hopelessness would set in. Their, their worst moments were those moments when they convinced themselves that everyone had given up looking for them that no one was ever going to come and rescue them. They had been forgotten. What an incredible ordeal for anyone to have to live through and survive. And they described that feeling of being all alone out there, even though there were eight of them. I, I was once on a 34-foot yacht in the middle of the ocean uh, where you could see no land for 360 degrees, and I'm not a sailor, I went with a friend kind of as a favor, and I remember being out there where the swells were so large that this boat would roll over one swell and then roll down into the middle of two swells, and you look to your left and you look to your right and you just saw a wall of water. And then you would come up the next one and go down into the next one, and it was terrifying. I had never felt so small and insignificant in my entire life. If you ever want to feel smaller than a speck of dust, that's the place that you'll experience that. And these men talked about the hopelessness that set in, that they had to fight minute by minute, day after day, for three weeks. 
feeling that search parties had given up on them and they were forgotten and without hope. Thankfully, I'm assuming none of us have had to endure being lost at sea on a raft for three weeks, but we have all experienced times when we felt lost in life. We've all experienced times when perhaps we felt forgotten and even hopeless. And it's a long journey, it seems, from that point of hopelessness to the day when hope finally does break through. And when that happens, it is a truly life-giving moment. Well, many, many centuries ago, there were another eight people who were adrift on the ocean for a very long time. And they must have wondered if it was ever going to end. They must have wondered if hope was ever going to shine through. And about the time when they were wondering if they were doomed and lost forever, we read the following four encouraging words in Genesis 8.1. But God remembered Noah. The reason I want to read just those four words, and I never do that, I'm just going to focus on those four words right now because they stand out so dramatically from the surrounding chapters of devastation and darkness and gloom and hopelessness and destruction. You see, prior to Noah getting onto the ark, the Bible gives us multiple records of God speaking to him. For instance, back in Genesis 6.13, it says, Then the Lord said to Noah, and for the rest of that entire chapter, we see God continuously speaking to Noah. Then you turn the page and you get to Genesis chapter 7, verse 1, and it says again, Then the Lord said to Noah, and and once again, Noah is hearing directly from God. But once Noah and his family went into the ark and the Lord shut the door, there's not one record of God saying anything anything else to Noah for the entire duration of the flood. Now, we've seriously misread the scriptures if we think that Noah and his family were only in the ark for 40 days. That's a common misunderstanding, but it's incorrect. Now, that would have been bad enough, but they were in the ark for much, much longer than that. As I pointed out a long time ago in our Through the Bible study that we're in, When we were in Genesis, I mentioned to you back then that if you add up all the dates and time frames that are given throughout the story of the flood, if you add all of those up, what we find is that Noah and his family were in the ark for 371 days. Some say 370, depends on if you count the first and last days as half days or whole days, and it doesn't really matter. That's a long time. So for more than a year, Noah and his family were closed off in that ark. God shut them into that ark, and they were completely cut off from every person they had ever known, completely isolated from the life they had once enjoyed. No visiting family members, no social gatherings with friends and neighbors. They were totally separated from everyone and everything that mattered to them. And to make things even worse, they had no control over the direction of the ship. There was no rudder. There was no steering mechanism. There were no sails. I mean, if ever there was a picture of feeling lost in an out-of-control world, that was it. 
Noah and his family must have felt closed in. They must have felt claustrophobic. They must have felt so alone the same way many people in our world have felt this year. People's daily routines have been upended. Many have been cut off from their families, unable to hug their grandchildren. Some have even been heartlessly prevented from being by the bedside of a dying loved one, which I think is one of the cruelest crimes that could ever be perpetrated on another human being. This has been a year of physical trials, mental trials, emotional trials, and spiritual trials. Many people have been wondering where God is during all of this, whether he sees, whether he knows, whether he cares about what they're going through. And as a pastor, I see this on an amplified scale. Surely Noah and his family experienced the same things. They must have had days when they wondered if they would ever hear from God again. They were out there adrift on an endless sea after having ridden out the worst storm in history, trying to make sense of it all, clinging to their faith in God and and longing to hear just a word from him. Day after day of isolation and silence, not knowing what the next day would bring. Days turned into weeks, weeks turned into months. And those months must have dragged by as they waited and waited for a sign of hope. Have you ever had times like that in your life? Have you ever felt like your prayers to God were were bouncing off the ceiling? That he had turned his back on you? That he was not hearing you? That he had forgotten you? Surely, at some point in all of this, Noah and his family must have thought, are we lost out here forever? Does God know where we are? Is God going to keep his promise to us? Or has he abandoned us forever? And in the midst of that, we read these incredible four words in Genesis 8.1. But God remembered Noah. And suddenly, hope rushes in. He does know. He does care. He is present. But here's what makes this even more beautiful. You see, to us, When we remember something, it implies that we forgot it at some point. So when Genesis 8-1 says, God remembered Noah, is it telling us that God had forgotten Noah prior to that? Because if so, I have deep theological problems. Well, I'm, I'm thankful to tell you that's not what that Hebrew word means. The Hebrew word there for remembered is the word zakar, Z-A-K-A-R. And it's important to understand what this means because the word zakar refers to fulfilling a covenant rather than forget, uh, remembering something that was forgotten. In other words, to say God remembered Noah is to say God honored his covenant with Noah and fulfilled it. Another way of saying it is God kept him in mind. In other words, he remembered him all along. It's just the author is just now stepping in to the story and saying, oh, God remembered Noah. 
When it says God remembered Noah, it's, it's literally highlighting the fact that during all those lonely months in the ark, in the midst of Noah's darkness and fear, Noah had been on God's mind all along. Those four beautiful words in Genesis 8.1, but God remembered Noah, are not revealing God's forgetfulness. They're revealing God's faithfulness. He remembered Noah the whole time. Noah was never out of God's thoughts. That's the picture behind Zakar. And we see this same pattern throughout the Bible because God is a covenant-keeping God who will not break his covenant with his people. In the worst of people's times that we see throughout the Bible, in their most fearful, most difficult, most trying times when they felt afraid and alone, we discovered they were never forgotten by God. He had kept them on his mind and he kept his promises to them. Let me just share a few examples with you. I didn't do slides today because I had a bunch of verses and I think I'm just going to jump around here in my notes and I wouldn't have been able to keep up with it on the slides. Here are a few. Genesis 19:29. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham. Genesis 30:22. When Rachel was desperate and crying out to the Lord because she couldn't have children, it says then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. Exodus 2.24, when God's people were captive in Egypt and were slaves there, it says, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Leviticus 26.45, but for their sake I will remember the covenant of their ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I may be their God. Numbers 10.9, when you go to war in your land against the enemy who oppress you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets, and you will be remembered before the Lord your God, and you will be saved from your enemies. One more. 1 Samuel 1.19, then they rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord, and returned and came to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. On and on we could go. In every one of these cases, these people felt overwhelmed by something. And although God may have seemed far away, he had kept them all on his mind the entire time. And listen, life point, God does the same for us in all of our worst moments. I was talking to Sandy just the other day. I said, I'm, I literally feel like I'm about to lose my sanity because of the events of this year and the response and the division and all of the issues that have been forced into our lives this year. This year has tested and tried people in so many unexpected ways. Perhaps there have been times during all of this when we haven't responded like we should have. Maybe our fears overshadowed our faith. Maybe our patience fell short of what we would have liked. Maybe there were days when we doubted God's presence and goodness. 
And as people who truly desire to follow God, those responses can make us feel like failures. But I want you to know this morning that even in our weakest, most fearful, most pathetic moments of failure, when, when we feel worthless and as low as dirt, God remembers us in those moments and he completely understands. I love Psalm 103, 13. It says, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Here it is, for he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. Psalm 136, 23 said, he remembered us in our lowly estate for his mercy endures forever." So when we find ourselves in trials that shake us and maybe even break us, when we feel lost and confused and uncertain and afraid and even forgotten, we're not alone. When we find ourselves in moments where we're thinking thoughts like David wrote in Psalm 13, 1, when he said, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long? Will you hide your face from me? When we have moments like that, let's call to mind those four beautiful words. But God remembered Noah. And let's hold fast to the assurance that God remembers us too. Let's recount verses like Isaiah 49, 15, where God said, Can a woman forget her nursing child? that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? He says, even they may forget, yet I will not forget you. And he goes on to say this remarkable, mind-bending statement. He says, I have engraved you on the palms of my hand. What an encouragement to know that even when we feel forgotten, God has never forgotten us. He remembers us. He remembers his promise to us through Christ that can never be broken despite our weakness, despite our frailty, despite our failures, despite our doubt. And so what should our response be to such a gracious and loving God? Well, we see Noah's response in Genesis chapter 8. Noah got off the ark In verse 19 of chapter 8, and what was the very first thing he did? Genesis 8, 20, then Noah built an altar to the Lord. Noah's response to God remembering him was for him to remember God and to worship him. And God asks us to do the same. As we come to communion this morning, I I can't help but think of that last meal, the last supper that the Lord Jesus had with his disciples the night before he was so brutally abused and beaten and mocked and crucified. And Luke 22, 19 pulls back the curtain and lets us step into that very personal moment with his disciples. It says, and he took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. And I want to tell you, folks, in a year like this one has been, and it ain't over yet, in a year like this one has been, remembering God, keeping Him on our mind at all times is the best thing we could ever do. Why? Because He is the only one who can give us peace and hope and calm in such unstable and unpredictable days as these. I'm telling you guys, you won't find that peace and hope and assurance in any politician or any political party. None of them. And times are so unsettling. We must look to Him for assurance. We must look to Him for stability. We must look to Him for security and safety and hope. A kind of hope that only exists outside of this world. It's that peace that Philippians tells us about. That peace that surpasses, it exceeds all human understanding. It's inexplicable. You've experienced it as a follower of Christ. There have been moments when you should have been wrecked. And yet you look at someone and you say, I can't explain it. I'm just calm. I'm just at peace. And I shouldn't be. Why? What's happening? Because you've gotten your eyes off of the problem. And you've put your eyes on the one who can give peace and hope and comfort and stability that is outside of the things of this world. That's exactly what people throughout the Bible had to do when they were surrounded by enemies, when they were overcome by fear, when it seemed that the very foundation under their feet was crumbling. God said to them, look to me, remember me, call my faithfulness to mind in these times. Psalm 94, 18, the psalmist said, when I said my foot is slipping, your unfailing love, Lord, supported me. When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolation delights my soul. Deuteronomy 7, 17, you may say in your heart, these nations are greater than we are. How can we drive them out? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt. Jonah 2.7, Jonah said, when my soul fainted within me, what did I do? I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. You see, folks, this all comes down to who we're trusting in to get us through all of this. As followers of Christ, our hope cannot be in any one person or group or anything in this world, because those things will never, ever bring us safely through. Our hope must be anchored in God alone. And I know that sounds like a churchy Christian cliche. I know that sounds like what a pastor is supposed to say. But maybe it's become a cliche because it's been proven true so many times. Our hope must be anchored in him. What are you trusting in this year? What are you trusting in to get you through? I talked to a friend a few weeks ago who had own, has owned two restaurants, part owner of two restaurants. They're completely gone. Out of business forever. 
He has a wife and a little boy and another one on the way. What does a person do who's invested his whole life into that? And it's been stolen from him as a follower of Christ. Where does he turn to find hope? As I talked to him, I was so encouraged to hear him say, my hope is in God. He'll get me through. I'm not concerned about this. And and you almost want to grab people like that and go, hey, dude, are you living in fantasy land? Don't you realize how serious this is? But of course he does. Of course he does. His livelihood is gone. He had to drive a dump truck for a while to put food on the table. These are strange times, folks. These are times that are crushing people's lives. And if we look to anything or anyone in this world, we're going to live in fear and uncertainty. Our hope must be in God alone. Psalm chapter 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. And you go, chariots and horses, what's that all about? Listen, that was a symbol of a nation's might and power and strength and security. And so God's people said, boy, these other nations, they're trusting in all their mighty military power, their government, all of those things. No, no, we choose to remember the name of the Lord our God. That's where our hope, that's where our strength comes from. There must have been days in that ark when Noah felt afraid and wondered if God was still watching over him. But God remembered Noah. And as we come to communion now, let's take a moment to pause and give thanks that God remembers us. And let's use this time to remember him and give thanks. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time... May God bless you as you continue to follow Him. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you.